This episode is brought to you by the Cambridge Norwich Tech Corridor, which is home to the people and businesses tackling the grand challenges facing humanity and shaping the future of food, energy, medicine and mobility. Linking two of the UK's powerhouse cities, it is one of Europe's most exciting growth stories. They aim to improve the health as well as the wealth of this unique region by bringing together businesses and political leaders to amplify the region's existing collective strengths and create a place where people and businesses can thrive. To learn more, visit techcorridor.co.uk. Welcome to Inside the Bradfield Centre. I'm James Parton, Managing Director of the Bradfield Centre. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Kevin Boyle, who's the CEO and co-founder of our fastest growing member, Gearset. So, Kevin, thanks for taking the time for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, very much appreciated. Um, why don't we start at the top? What was the uh, the origin story of uh, Gearset and uh, what kind of problem does Gearset solve? Yeah, Gearset's got sort of a funny origin story for a startup. Uh, we were working at a company here in Cambridge called Redgate Software, uh, which... Uh, builds DevOps products and solutions for the Microsoft ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Redview was, was and is an awesome company to work for, and um, but like lots of smart Cambridge companies, had a bunch of its own tech that it had no sort of business developing, but developed anyway. Mm. And one of those things was its own CRM. And a few years later, the runway runs out on that, and they ended up bringing in Salesforce. Yeah, And I guess that was my first exposure to Salesforce, and I thought of it as a CRM application, and then as I got exposed to it more and more, I discovered it was this whole platform that you could build on top of. And what was really interesting about Redgate adopting uh, Salesforce was that it used an external SI system integrator, as a, as a lot of companies do, but also put a bunch of its own uh, software engineers on that implementation as well. Yeah. And they loved Salesforce, loved the power of the platform, the productivity. Um, they didn't love the development experience. They didn't love the lack of source control, the lack of continuous integration. Yeah. Um, looked around for something, assuming there would be some solution out there for this yeah. uh, that allowed you know, teams of people to work together, building building solutions on top of it, and f- found nothing. Um, so came to me and another few people that were uh, in Redgate's R&D department at the time, said, here's an area you got to go look at. Uh, so we went off and looked at it and just really loved what we saw from uh, product potential and business potential and, and all of the rest. So we started Gearset to, to go off and, and look at solving that problem for teams. Nice. So you obviously spotted a gap in the market and ended up spinning out of Redgate. Yeah, we spun out of Redgate, took uh, seven people at the time and came and started Gearset um, to try and help, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people globally that build solutions on top of Salesforce to try and give them a development experience that's every bit as good as, you know, JavaScript or C Sharp or Java or any any other platform you choose to uh, choose to consider. Perfect. I mean, we've we've mentioned Salesforce there a couple of times. For the for the uninitiated, what what's give us a flavour for the scale of uh, uh, Salesforce's ecosystem? Because I mean, I've been in San Francisco when Dreamforce has been on, obviously pre lockdown, um, and you know, the, the, it's enormous, right? Just the size of that 
that uh, the company, the number of customers, the number of vendors that you know, are part of that ecosystem. Do you want to give us a flavor of what that looks like? Because you're obviously a key part of that community. Yeah, as I say, prior to Gearset, I hadn't that much exposure to Salesforce. I obviously knew them as, you know, the creators of this sort of SaaS business model in lots of ways, yeah. um, this mega stock market uh, ticker. You know, there's, there's, I sort of knew them from that point of view. Yeah. But I, I didn't really know what they did. I didn't really know a lot of... Um, a lot of what Salesforce was about. I certainly didn't understand the scale of it. Yeah. Um, I then started to understand the scale of the product, what types of companies are building on it, what types of solutions those companies are building. Yeah. And yeah, the real eye-opening moment was when we went to Dreamforce in, in 2014, uh, which is their, their sales and tech conference in San Francisco. Uh, it's, uh, I guess I'd done lots of other conferences at this stage of my career. I'd done... Tech Aid, I'd done Pass, I'd, you mm. know, Build, uh, all, all these conferences that Microsoft put on, 10, yeah. 15,000 people. Dreamforce was just something else. It mm. was 150,000 people. They closed down streets in San Francisco, right in the heart, just off market, in around the Moscone Center. They put down fake carpet on this. So you're like walking along the street, there's crosswalks and traffic lights, and you're walking through this sort of, it's it's been described as half tech conference and half sort of rock festival. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. you, you two have played there, Hillary yeah. Clinton's spoken there. It's just a yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's a it? weird mix of stuff. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Um so I mean your background, you're a software engineer by uh, education, right? So I mean, how have you kind of found performing the kind of CEO co-founder role and how has that kind of stretched you out of your comfort zone and, and what kind of, how have you approached equipping yourself with the, the kind of skills necessary to lead a business? It's the kind of thing that you only do, I think, if you don't think about it. Right. So I'm a, yeah, software engineer by background and the sort of classic geek profile growing up, loved playing with computers, loved building computers, playing video games, you know, oh. just a nerd. And grew up at a time when my first computer was an Amstrad CPC, uh, if, you, if you've ever encountered those. Yeah. And what was awesome about computers of that generation was to do anything, you had to do a little bit of programming. Yeah. Just that you were, you were dumped out at a basic prompt to do anything. Yeah. Um, so grew up exposed to technology, really wanted to be good at writing code. That was, yeah. that was what I wanted to do and really focused on through university and through my first couple of jobs. I wanted to be good at that. Then then I wanted to be good at that as part of a team. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered that the thing that I really loved doing, but I still do love writing code, I started to get more of a buzz out of building products to help people do their job, mm-hmm. um, which is what I had a, a fantastic career at Redgate doing. Um, and... I guess there I had a few different jobs where I started off as a software engineer, then went to sort of sort of a product manager. My job title never changed from software engineer, but I ended up doing a whole bunch of different things um, that I think equipped me quite well to go and do gear set. And the biggest shift has been probably the shift towards um, building a, a sales organization. That was probably the the biggest thing I've had to do at Gearset that I'd never done anything. I'd never done any selling before yeah. at all. Yeah. But the way that Gearset does sales is a lot like I did product management before. You speak to customers, you understand their problems, you 
try and work out how they would solve. You know, how would you solve it if you were them? How can Gearset software fit into that mix? Yeah. Um, so it's a lot like product management in a way. Only at the end of it, you ask for cash or you ask for credit <laughs> card details. So yeah, a collaborative you know. process. Yeah, and but it's a uh, that that's been probably the one of the biggest shifts um, to just building that. I was, I was going to ask you about the kind of go-to-market. You know, you talk about building a sales organization. I mean, do you do any kind of developer relations style outreach and kind of build community kind of through that approach? Or is it is it more of a sales-led approach? No, it's we're, we're, we're product-led yeah. um, company. So we make sure that if you're a Salesforce developer or a Salesforce admin and, and you're uh, you're out there searching for a solution to the problem of how to get your team to work effectively together, how to adopt version control, how to, um, you know, really effectively be a software team on, on top of Salesforce, yeah. then you'll probably go read stuff on Stack Exchange or you'll read stuff on uh, the sort of influencer blogs and things. Yeah. And we make sure that, you know, lots of that thought leadership content is stuff either that we have written or, you know, that we have had to make sure our voice and opinion is in there. Mm -hmm. Um, So then folks, whilst they're getting themselves educated, come across Gearset, come to our website to try out the product. And we we make all that slippery as we can be. You know, you don't need to give us credit card details. You don't need to speak to a sales rep if you don't want to. Just use the product and and be successful. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're pretty sure out the other side of that, you'll become a subscriber and stay with us. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, before we get much deeper into the conversation, maybe we should just kind of backtrack a little and, and talk about DevOps as a kind of, as a discipline. Um, I think it's fairly well understood these days, but it might be worth just kind of recapping your take on DevOps and what it means to you guys. Yeah, and in particular, I guess, what the some of the nuance of what it means in the Salesforce ecosystem, because mm. it, it can mean a little bit um, of a different thing versus, you know, a DevOps team building Kubernetes solutions on top of AWS or something. Um, I guess the original uh, DevOps sort of methodology sort of evolved a little bit out of agile software and the idea that we're starting to deliver more and more frequently um, and the strain that that was putting on release schedules and the ability to run that software um, either on sort of public or private cloud or, you know, whatever way you want to run it and deliver it. Yeah. And DevOps was all about bridging the gap between the folks writing the software and the folks delivering the software in terms of the systems, keeping them up and running and making sure those teams were were highly aligned and sort of, I guess, the the consequences from bad decisions in one, you know, came back to the original team and make them have that end-to-end ownership um, rather than throwing stuff over the wall. That's all true in the Salesforce world as well, except that... Salesforce is a very managed platform, so you're you're not really thinking at the the primitives of containers or virtual machines or you know networking VPCs or you know that's not the kind of stuff you're thinking about. It's a it's a much higher level abstraction. Mm-hmm. You still have a lot of the same challenges though around how to get a team to collaborate effectively how to make sure that your release cycles are, you know, those release cadences are nice and short, um, how to get your software well delivered, well written and well delivered into the hands of your end users. Um, so all of those sorts of core tenants of, of DevOps still hold true, even if some of the, some of the technology choices are, are different. Yeah. Uh, I was listening to one of your uh, talks on YouTube 
just preparing for this. And uh, I like the way you described that kind of reduction in risk by going for that kind of continuous deployment uh, approach, you know, getting away from those huge releases where you've got so much stuff to test and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, bug fix. Yeah, completely. And, and those, uh, the complexity of your delivery pipeline is really what decides your release cadence. Yeah. So with Salesforce native tools where they're not that well developed and not that, you know, far down this, this sort of industry shift towards frequent re- release schedules, um, you know, we often come across teams that do a month of development work before uh-huh. they get it out to their end users. And then, yeah, you're carrying, if you go back to all the sort of lean uh, principles you're you're carrying a massive amount of inventory there you know there's a lot of stuff sitting on the shelf that yeah. you can view in two ways you can view it as well this is great stuff that hasn't been delivered to your end users that's a shame it's a shame they have to keep waiting for this mm. um and also it's a lot of risk because whilst we're working from the assumption that it's great stuff we don't <laughs> know that until someone started using it mm. so from both at risk reduction and also time to value as soon as you write some code let's get it out to our users you know and that, yeah. i think that's true if you're building you know mobile app or web app or salesforce or whatever you still want to get the stuff that you're building out to your users and get feedback as quickly as possible it seems like you guys are practicing what you preach as well you're releasing like uh, new versions of uh, gear set like 10 times a week i think something like that three times a day i think you were saying yeah three to um, four times each day yeah so i mean how so how are you achieving that you know how do you organize your engineering teams to to achieve that kind of thing um the i guess it's in the dna of the company mm. so you can look at it from a bunch of different dimensions. There's the technical excellence that's required to to have a delivery pipeline, you know, that well oiled. Then there's also, you know, the why we do it. So we do it so that we can get product feedback as as quickly as we can. So there's that product excellence. Um, there's sort of sales excellence. It's not just an engineering problem. It's you know, as our, as our I said, we we have a sales organization that's highly consultative it's you know it's it's not about shifting units of software it's about working with our customers to understand what they need yeah and those guys are you know world experts in uh salesforce devops and how to arrange salesforce teams so they're able to give feedback back into our product organization about what to build and what our prioritization would look like from the purely technical point of view um yeah, we just have baked that in from, from day one. If you're a, a seven-person team in Cambridge trying to build a, you know, a, a global, multi-tenant, highly available SaaS application, you have to get some of those fundamentals and some of those foundations right. Mm. And as we scale the company, we've hired amazing engineers, amazing technical leaders um, that have embraced that that ethos and have just made it even better so as we've gone from one data center to four or five data centers you know four engineers to 40 engineers they have done the heavy lifting of keeping that culture of of continuous improvement um very much alive Mm. Uh, so we just automate do, do the things that everyone you know aspires to do um automate everything you know do infrastructure as code um but I think more than any of the technical solutions to that problem, it's an it's a company wide um, embracing and certainly an engineering wide embracing of that we want to be delivering three to four times a day. That's important to us. Yeah. Um, so that that culture just permeates everything that we do. 
Return to the office with confidence. At the Bradfield Centre, we offer a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. We have a range of high quality meeting and collaboration spaces for hire. And for event organisers, our auditorium, lakeside pavilion and atrium spaces are all back to full capacity and dates are filling up fast. If you are looking to run an event, get in touch to discuss requirements, including live video recording and live video streaming options. Visit BradfieldCentre.com for more information or call 01223-919-600. I'll come back and talk to you a little bit more about scaling the business because also you've had really impressive growth. Um, before we do that, let's just go back and you, you talked about reaching you know, influencers and, and building that kind of thought leadership and profile for the company. So, you know, you guys have, uh, have got behind the state of Salesforce DevOps survey and you do your own Salesforce DevOps summit. You know, talk to us a little about some of those initiatives and, you know, what kind of uh, reaction you've seen to them and has it really helped kind of, you know, turn into that thought leadership and generate sales for you guys? Yeah, I think you're set, um, and the folks that started it had a, a different viewpoint, um, to a lot of the the maybe received wisdom that was in the Salesforce ecosystem. So from the very start, we have been bringing an engineering mindset and engineering excellence uh, viewpoint to the ecosystem and uh, making sure that folks understand why adopting these processes are, are ultimately good for you. Mm. Um, so from the very start, we've been we've been doing that. You know, white papers on. Uh, how teams can adopt version control and continuous integration and, and all these different things. Uh, so we, we've sort of been out there from the, from the get-go. Um, some of the really interesting stuff we've done recently is hosting our own uh, virtual summits. They were virtual uh, last year and this year, and yeah. hopefully, hopefully there'll be uh, physical events uh, next year uh, where we bring folks together to talk about this, discuss it, run workshops on it, um, and really as I guess as we have scaled and and earned more market share and earned more voice in that market, yeah, the things we do now have a slightly a bigger impact uh, yeah. because we're a little bit bigger. But I think it's, again, part of the DNA of the company is, you know, we think you should be, um, uh, there should be en- engineering excellence on top of Salesforce, the same as any other platform. And I think we have a, a viewpoint on how that should be done. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that AWS well-architected stuff and and the stuff they do around driving that education around the space as well. Yeah, for sure, because I think it's it's new. There's lots of folks in the Salesforce ecosystem who um, have come from come from Salesforce. They've come from building solutions on top of Salesforce. They yeah. maybe haven't worked on other platforms or haven't been exposed to other ways of working. Um, and yeah, you don't know what you don't know, so... Mm go out and do a bunch of education and, and show folks, hey, if you were building apps with Java, you'd, you'd do it this way. And okay, well, you don't have to worry about this stuff. And that's great because Salesforce will take care of that for us. But there's still a bunch of, there's a bunch of great learning here that we can apply to any any platform. Yeah. And then I think another, you know, great thing that you guys are doing, which is, you know, just classic scale up playbook stuff is building the kinds of partnerships that, you know, really help build your credibility. So I see you're working with the likes of GitHub as your DevOps, Alassian, you know, talk to us a little bit about the importance of partnering and, and how that's helped extend the, the product, you know, offering and improve the, the kind of product experience that you guys provide yeah partnering is such a such a broad topic um there's a bunch of different lenses you can look at it through the way we started was maybe with a little bit of that product mindset again where mm. 
we saw other folks in the ecosystem um, reinventing things that were already fairly well-solved problems. So we would see people try to create um, bespoke version control for Salesforce. Well, to us that was kind of backwards because GitHub, you know, GitLab, all these companies do yeah. a super job there, right? Like, yeah. you know, the best that you will ever do is as good as them. And that just felt, well, you know, why, you know, why reinvent this stuff? So from the start, from a product point of view, we partnered with the best companies and the best tools for solving each of those individual disciplines. Yeah. And then we would be the glue that would tie that all together and, and provide the CI and CD on top of Salesforce. Mm-hmm. Um, then as we scaled the company, uh, yeah, the, obviously you're, you're, if you can develop uh, effective partnering relationships, you get to benefit from you know, work, working with those fantastic brands and, and yeah. it lends a, a bunch of credibility to your offering. Um, and then there's a there's a bunch of unique opportunities within the Salesforce ecosystem for it's a very partner led yeah. ecosystem. So the system integrators, if if you wanted to adopt Salesforce, you call up Salesforce and say, hey, I'd like to buy some Salesforce. They'll say, fantastic. Um, let me introduce you to my uh, system integrator partner in your region. Yeah. Um, so those folks then are great to, to work with because. If you're bringing Salesforce in, if you're going to start building solutions on top of it, you're going to need some DevOps solution and making sure those SIs recommend us is is uh, is, is really good for our go-to-market. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. So we, we started to touch on it, but um, talk us a little bit, you know, around the, the challenges that you've, or how you've approached scaling the business and, you know, what are, what are the challenges you've faced as you've kind of grown so rapidly? A bunch of challenges. That's a great question. There's... The classic sort of imposter syndrome and, and not really knowing what you're doing and, and having to just react and, and make stuff up. I never had to get a building before, or <laughs> find a place to put 120 people. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that's something you then have to start thinking about. I never had to deal with commercial property contracts. Now, someone has to, right? So, mm-hmm. so loads of that falls to, uh, falls to me and a few others in the business. The biggest challenge, though, is the same one that everyone has, which is finding great people. You can say that scaling is your ultimate goal and weaken your culture or weaken your hiring, lower your hiring bar um, to enable that scaling. Or you can stay true to the thing that you're trying to create, making sure that you know the 131st colleague is just as good as the, the first colleague that you had. Yeah. And that, if you choose that path of having excellence in all areas of the business, having an amazing amazingly high bar for making sure you're finding people that are genuinely excellent at their role uh, then you're going to struggle to find people and that's mm. that's definitely been our, our biggest obstacle has been finding people yeah and i guess you know as you as you are growing you're hiring people all over the place right now you're not geographically limited to just cambridge no no we've um i guess pre-covid we had started to hire remote as mm-hmm. well. We had full-time remote developers. I actually remember quite a, a fractious board meeting in February of 2020 uh, where I said I wanted to double down on remote. I wanted to have lots of great remote engineering teams. And it was a, it was an interesting board discussion as to, no, that was, 
you know, we had created something amazing with folks co-located and yeah. an office in Cambridge. You know, why were we going to risk jeopardizing all of that by by having to run the whole thing remotely? And then, yeah, a month later, we that decision <laughs> the decision was <laughs> was taken away from us. Yeah. So that, that was that was great from that point of view um, that we proved that we could work remotely. Mm. I, I was already confident we could because we, as I say, we had hired full time remote people. We were planning to hire more gear set had run like a hybrid organization before that was a thing that I knew what label to put it on it. Mm. We didn't care where people were. We had a lovely office here in the Bradfield and folks would come into it if, you know, it was just a nice place to work, a nice place to to hang out with people that were like-minded. Um, but there was no reason you had to be here. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we happy to have you work from home. And we had originally set up the company systems to support that. The original, original, original vision for the whole thing was I would be based out of New York. Okay. And uh, Matt, Gearset's co-founder, and the, the rest of the team would be based here in Cambridge. Okay. So we sort of set it up from day one to be async because if I was going to be, you know, five hours offset from the rest of the team, yeah. you know, that we had to make that work from the get-go. Um, so I was pretty confident in the foundations of what we'd chosen and the way we'd chosen to work together that it would scale to that um, but yeah COVID was sort of the ultimate test of of that uh, sort of nice theory yeah well, well, well I'll, I'll ask you a question in a second about you know how you've dealt with lockdown and all those kinds of things but just you know keeping on that theme of remote teams distributed teams you know as the as the you know CEO you, you're obviously spending a lot of time I guess thinking about company culture with your attitude to making sure that those remote teams still feel part of the company and uh, you know if they're even even if they're just self-selecting working from home versus in another country you know how do you, how do you maintain that sense of togetherness I would say on the culture front um I wouldn't purport to have the answer. It's still been the single biggest challenge over the last year and a half. So I guess maybe a, a year or two from now we'll have sort of decided if we have got that right or not. Yeah, I think it's just lots and lots of little things. Again, it's choosing what to focus on. So if the culture of the company is important to you, you could make a decision that it's not. You could make a decision that, you know, we, we just opened an office in Chicago and we could make a decision that actually we're happy for the Chicago office to be totally separate to be totally distinct, to have a different set of values. And there are lots of businesses that do operate that way. Um, so we've chosen not to do that. We want a single global feel to the company. Mm. If, you know, if you're working with a colleague in Chicago, it should feel very similar to working with a, a colleague in Histon. So the ways that we have done that are the company has been, for, again, from the start, built on this culture of uh, openness, transparency, and feedback. So... Yeah. There's nothing really a gear set secret. We talk about our customers, our uh, revenue, our company strategy. It's all open if you're an employee. Mm. Um, And I think when you start from those foundations, you create an environment where folks are happy to, to talk about what's in their mind, to show vulnerability, to show weakness. And then that breeds a a culture of caring about the people around you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's true if you are, uh, sitting next to each other at desks or if you're, you know, 3,000 miles away, I think you'll still care about the, the colleague and making sure they're being successful. And we have done things like, we did all the stuff that everyone did during lockdown. We did, you know, virtual drinks on a Friday and yeah. lots of uh, virtual events, um, things like escape rooms um, mm-hmm. where you're, you know, you're the someone somewhere in Sheffield is wearing a GoPro when you're <laughs> telling them to do burpees through Zoom, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, which was all all really, really good fun. I would say that we just did a summer barbecue where we got 
um, everybody together for the first time, or as not everybody, but as many people as we could get together for yeah. the first time, and that was pretty unbeatable. So I do think if you look at even fully remote companies, they yeah. still like to get together a few times a year. Absolutely. Um, there's a there's a lot to be said for those sorts of uh, those events and, and human relationships. Yeah, I mean, back in the Twilio days, going over to San Francisco to you know be in HQ and just being around people just makes such a huge difference. Yeah, um, we, we just had uh, the guy that we've hired to run our Chicago office is this um, awesome sales leader called Simon Bishop, and I've worked with him now for six months or so, whatever length of time we've had that office open and work really well together. Zoom makes it all effective. We can mm. we can effectively run the business. Um, but he's been over in Cambridge for the last three weeks, getting to go out for sushi with him and seeing the man demolish uh, some sashimi or, <laughs> you know, tearing into Negronis like they're going out of fashion. You know, those are things that we were never going to discuss over Zoom. Yeah. Um, whereas I think now knowing that about him is just, you know, it's just add a little bit of color to the relationship. And yeah, totally. it, you know, it makes everything else easier. And about your point about, you know, the challenges of hiring, I'm guessing the culture, the openness, the the flexibility just gives you an advantage when you're trying to, you know, it's a cutthroat market out there for software engineers, right? So it gives you a bit of an advantage. Yeah, I think you're going to struggle to recruit if you don't have something unique about your company. If all you're going to go on is, let's say, compensation is the obvious one. I mean... A Cambridge startup is going to struggle compared to Google or Facebook or yeah. whatever. And, and the folks that work at GearSet could go have those jobs tomorrow if they wanted. There's, you know, there's no there's no reason they couldn't go and pass those interviews. The the thing that keeps them at GearSet is, is again, because always comes back to the team and the colleagues you're working with and choosing. I guess we all spend you know forty plus hours of work a week right, uh, a week at work. So you're sort of trying to decide what do you want to spend that time doing? Mm. Um, you want to be working with amazing people. You want to be um, trying to do something together and doing something more than just cranking out the the day's hours to get to some results that don't really matter. Yeah. Um, so we, we focus on a lot on the team side during uh, recruitment. We want to make sure that folks that are coming in uh, think about things the same way that we do and care about things the same way that we do and have the same values. Uh, so that's, that's important to us. Yeah. I mean, so it's, I mean, it sounds like you didn't have a specific, you weren't driven, let's say, by lockdown and the necessity to figure out how to work remotely. You know, you were, you were already going down that path. But, you know, talk to us about how the, you have adapted and, you know, how you're approaching the way the team operates moving forward. It sounds like it's pretty self-elective in terms of who comes in and, and when kind of thing. What, what's your approach? Yeah, it accelerated. COVID accelerated a lot of the things. So originally, we would never have opened an office in Chicago having never met uh, folks. Yeah. Um, the original plan was we were going to grow uh, a few of our sales leaders here in the UK for a couple more years, get them a little bit more experience, a little bit more people management, and then mm. we'd get them visas and they'd go out and open the office. Or yeah. if we did hire someone, we'd have them come over here first for six months and, mm. and work with us here and, th and then go back and open it. Um, but yeah, we kind of, in, in March and April last year, when it was clear the the scale of what was going to be uh, unleashed on society, we had to decide either we now we pause hiring for you know certainly twelve plus months, mm. um, or we just embrace this thing. We just embrace it and try and take the opportunity from it. And the opportunity for us was okay. Well, now we gotta we can open this office in Chicago because we 
you know, we, we have to hire there. We have to make it work. So let's do that. Um, same with remote developers. It was, you know, it was no longer a case of, um, you know, trying to convince ourselves to do one or two hires and maybe build a team and maybe see how it worked. It was like, everyone's remote. Okay, let's get yeah. as many remote developers now as we possibly can. And that'll stop us ever backsliding. If, yeah. we, um, if we ever come back to an office, there'll be such a critical mass of remote folk that never want to be at an office that will be forced into making all of those things work. Mm. I think we're still going through that transition. So we've got space here at the Bradfield for, you know, about 100 people, give mm. or take. And I'd say on any given day, there's maybe 30, 35 back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, different folks work different ways. And that, yeah. that's always suited us. And Yeah, and it's early, right? You know, who knows how things are going to turn out. But uh, yeah, it's good to have that flexibility to, uh, to go accordingly, whichever way we go. Yeah, that, that's worked well for us. And it's, um, it's, again, always worked well for our teams. You know, folks, if they want to work from home, they can work from home. If they want to come here, they can come here. Yeah. Um, we've never had a, you know, a strong view one way or the other. So, I mean, what's next? You know, uh, things are going great, it seems, in terms, certainly in terms of the way you're, you've scaled. So how long have you been with us? Two years? Two, two and a bit years? Yeah, two and a bit years. Yeah, I, I mean, the way yeah. you've grown is incredible. You started, I think, with 24 people. Is that right, here? Might have been even less. Yeah. I can't remember when we first moved in. We, It might have been, it was between 15 and 20, I think, when yeah. we first moved in. Yeah, so amazing growth. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, what does is, what is the next 12 months hold? Uh, double again, just double every year. That's the that's the plan, which goes back to finding great people as the big challenge. Mm. The plan is to, as I say, double revenue, double headcount. That's across everything. So as I said, we're, we're product-led, so we're, we're fundamentally a product company. Um, so we, to build a great product, you need amazing product managers, engineers, designers. Um, so we'll need all of those folks. Uh, there's no point building product if you can't get people to really understand the positioning and, and marketing behind that. So you yeah. need an amazing marketing team that's integrated with your product team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just, again, throwing stuff over the fence. And then once your marketing team do an amazing job of educating the market and your product does an amazing job of bringing folks in well then you want a, an amazing sales organization to help uh, shepherd them through so uh, to be that consultative expert uh, so again we're hiring account executives SDRs BDRs yeah. everything um, and then with the customer growth that we're seeing uh, you want a great customer success organization to really you know not just not to view customers as the relationship ending when they've purchased, yeah. but the relationship yeah. only beginning. Yeah, nurturing them and celebrating them. And uh, then, obviously, when you get to uh, 130 people or, you know, going on 200 people, uh, you start to have some internal needs as well, right? <laughs> so an amazing people team, an amazing recruitment team, yeah. um, all the folks that make Gearset work. Uh-huh. Uh, so just across the entire business, we're, we're hiring for absolutely everything. Yeah, such an exciting time. Well, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's been, uh, as I say, if you, if you sort of stop to think about it, you might stop, uh, you might get scared. <laughs> uh, so it's just heads down and, and keep growing. Yeah, well, thanks for spending the time. I uh, really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it, thanks very much. Thanks again to Kevin for coming on the show. A super busy guy, so very much appreciated. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV, and you can listen to previous episodes by searching for Inside the Bradfield Centre on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or by visiting bradfieldcentre.com. 
If you have a spare two seconds, give us a five-star review as it really help other people discover the show. 